Hey bubs, welcome back to a brand new episode of Talkin' Snicked. The best podcast there is at what it does, and what it does best is discuss Wolverine. I'm your host Ryan, today's episode is our 3rd in January. It is our hump episode, after this one there will only be two left, and we've already had two. We continue on with the January theme of Logan's Kids as we explore... No particular comic book storyline, but rather we visit the background and first appearances of some of Wolverine's canonical children. Now, Bubs, I'm sure you're wondering, what kids haven't we talked about already? Because on this podcast, we've not only devoted an entire month to Laura, but we've also covered stories that she has starred in alongside Wolverine. That being said, we've also covered Daken, or Dakin, or however you want to say the name of Wolverine's son. We've covered him a few times. He's appeared in some stories, and as a matter of fact, next week we are covering a story that should chronicle his first, or at least his earliest, appearances in the Wolverine canon. So, if we're not talking about Laura, and we're not talking about Daken today, who are we talking about? Well, we are going to discuss four, yes, that's right, four of Wolverine's children. These, some of them come from alternate presents, some come from alternate futures, some even come from alternate universes altogether. But they all share one thing, Wolverine, Logan, as their dad. So I'm going to cover them from oldest to newest, not oldest to youngest, but rather their first appearance chronology. So back in the late 90s, Marvel was publishing their monthly volume called What If? And What If? Every issue was a new question. We've covered some What If? stories on this podcast before where, you know, what if Wolverine had become Lord of the Vampires and what if Wolverine was Lord of the Vampires during Inferno? But the what-if stories didn't just focus on Wolverine. We had what-if stories for all kinds of characters. And in volume two of What If, number 105, we had a story that was what if Spider-Man and Mary Jane had given birth to May Parker. You see, in the regular canon, back during the Clone Wars, it was said that Mary Jane was pregnant. And unfortunately for her and Peter there was a miscarriage, and Peter and Mary Jane were never able to meet May Parker. But in What If number 105, May Parker is born. So the story here is, what if Peter Parker and Mary Jane had been able to have their daughter? And the story takes place in the present day, and it's a little bit different. The age of heroes, as it were, you know, the the appearance of the Fantastic Four uh, that generally marks the beginning of the Marvel Universe. What if all of that stuff happened 15 years earlier? And so, in the present day, our heroes were 15 years older. Many of them retired, some of them dead, some of them had become villains. Most of them, though, retired, Spider-Man included. And he now has a 15-year-old daughter named May. She goes by Mayday because, well, she's a handful. Well, this storyline from 
what if volume two number 105 took place in what's called mc2 or marvel comics 2 it was an alternate universe a couple of years before the ultimate universe came about in the early 2000s and it tried to do the same thing you know it tried to give us teenage superheroes as a way to reach out to a younger audience the problem was the younger audience didn't care they weren't reading these characters books anyway and so they didn't care that there were these alternate timelines where they had children now it did spawn a few storylines however that did last for at least you know a volume or so six seven issues one of those famously is a character called j2 he is the son of the original juggernaut he is named zane yama he is the son of juggernaut and a woman, I'm drawing a blank on her name, something Yama, uh, and Zane then gets the power of the Juggernaut. He inherits a portion of his father's power, and he becomes a hero called J2. And he had a six-issue ongoing series that lasted. Now, the, the longest-running series that came out of MC2 was Amazing Spider-Girl. I remember even picking up a couple of the Amazing Spider-Girl issues, because at that point, late 90s, 98, 99, I was a big Spider-Man fan, and anything that had Spider on it, I wanted to read. So when I saw Spider-Girl at the store, I picked up a couple, and didn't really do much for me. Uh, but in addition to her, like I said, there was J2. In his series, he goes on to join a group called the Uncanny X-People that has, you know, a bunch of alternate X-Men that are light, uh, led by Jubilee. Anyway, once we get to about four or five issues in, it's well, J2 number five to be exact, a new character appears. And this character is a young woman who wears a yellow and red costume, and she identifies herself as Rena Logan. She has these claws that appear to be psychic, and she has a suit that's very reminiscent of Wolverine's yellow and blue. Now, throughout this issue, it starts off, she appears and tries to fight J2. Kind of like how when Wolverine appeared and tried to fight the Hulk way back in Incredible Hulk 181. So, this character appears, she identifies herself as Rena Logan, says that her codename is Wild Thing, and that she's here because she wants to know what J2 knows about Juggernaut, because she knows that Juggernaut is a villain, and she's assuming this new Juggernaut, J2, must also be a villain, and she's trying to get information to put a stop to their, you know, evil plan. As it turns out, J2 is a hero, and so eventually Rena Logan is able to quit the fight, but not before Wolverine himself shows up, apologizes to J2, and says, eh, kids, you know, what are you going to do? And that's when we learn that Wild Thing is the daughter of Wolverine. And Despite the fact that all of these series failed and were relatively short-lived, she was popular enough in that first appearance in J2 that she spawned her own five-issue ongoing series called Wild Thing. Now, Wild Thing came out in late 99, early 2000. Wild Thing herself was created by writer Tom DeFalco and artist Ron Lim. I believe they were the uh, writer-penciler on the What If 105 and of course, they were also the writing and art team for J2, and that carried over to Wild Thing as well. Now, I sat down 
I read all five issues of Wild Thing, and frankly, it's not really worth your time. The first issue is kind of boring. It's like Tiny Toon Adventures meets X-Men, obviously, meets Saved by the Bell. It's really weird. She's a high school student. She's kind of awkward. She doesn't fit in with the rich clique because she's perceived as being this like poor orphan, which is really weird. I don't remember too much of the high school class warfare going on, at least not in 1999. This whole universe, MC2, it feels like it was about six years too late. Like all of this stuff was coming out in 1999. Had this all come out in like 1992 or 1993, I think it would have done pretty well. There were young kids being introduced to X-Men for the first time, and it might have been fun to have these new teenage heroes that were the children of heroes that we would have recognized from these cartoons. But alas, it came out in 1999, and it really just it didn't fit the time. The writing, the lingo, it was like an old man was writing these stories for teenagers in 1999, but the last time he had any contact with a teenager was like 1989, you know? So... It just, it didn't really click. The second issue is not bad. Uh, Electra actually shows up. It turns out that Wild Thing's mother, even though we might think it's Psylocke because of her psychic claws, it's actually Electra Nachios. So Wild Thing's mother shows up. That's Electra. She takes her to the mall to like a karate dojo and they're doing karate together. Although the whole time, uh, Rena is on this like weird virtual reality thing where she's pretending to be Wild Thing, which is you know kind of funny since she is Wild Thing. Uh, so that issue was okay, and the fourth issue itself is pretty good. That's one where Wolverine shows up and the two of them go on like this these nighttime adventures together. So in the five issues, there's a couple of bright spots, but I mean it's not all that great. The artwork looks more along the lines of like. Turtle, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Adventures or Batman Adventures or X-Men Adventures, which were the comics that were based on the cartoons from the 90s. You know, X-Men Adventures based on the X-Men animated series. Same thing with Batman. Same thing with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The artwork just, it comes across, or maybe it's not necessarily the artwork. Maybe it's like the coloring and the inking and stuff. Either way, it doesn't look as good as superhero comics should have in 1999. But for a 1993 cartoon-based comic, not bad. So do with that what you will. So that is Wild Thing. Rena Logan, she's from the MC2 universe, which is Earth 892 for all of you alternate Earth lovers. She is a hero. Her powers include heightened senses, super strength, super healing, and of course, psychic claws. Now the psychic claws... We actually do learn at some point that she learns how to do that from her godmother. So we have to assume that Psylocke at least is her godmother, if not her biological mother. But her psychic claws, they look like Wolverine's claws. There's three of them on each hand. Uh, but they work in almost the same way as Betsy's psychic knife does, you know? So that is Wild Thing, Rena Logan. Um, I don't necessarily recommend that you all rush out and read it. But you can actually find all of J2 and all of Wild Thing on Marvel Unlimited. So at least you don't have to pay to track them down. If you are curious, definitely check them out. But you don't really need to. They're nothing spectacular. It's a fun idea that was perhaps a few years too late. As we'll see when we discuss the Ultimate Universe, which launched in 2000. 
2001 and did much the same thing that MC2 did, but in a way that would actually reach teenage readers. So that was Wild Thing, Rena Logan, the daughter of Logan and Elektra. Next, we come to 2005, X-Men Age of Apocalypse number one. Now, in 2005, it was the 10-year anniversary of the Age of Apocalypse storyline. Age of Apocalypse was this huge crossover in 1995 that saw the cancellation of all the X books that were being published and replacing each title with a new title, with a new name, uh, usually the same creative team, new lineup, everything. And it branched out from the Age of Apocalypse event. Well, it, it branched out from the Legion Quest event, where Legion, the son of Professor Xavier, decided that Charles Xavier's dream would have come true long ago, if not for Magneto. So he decides, all right, well, how do I make Xavier's dream come true? I know. I'll travel back in time. I'll kill Magneto. And then that way, he won't be able to interfere when my dad creates the X-Men, and the X-Men will save the world. Everyone's happy, right? Well, he goes back in time. He underestimates how close his father was to Magneto, how close their friendship was. And when he appears in the past... Charles gets a glimpse of him, like a telepathic glimpse of of who this kid is and what's going on. And all he realizes is that this kid is here to kill Magneto. So Xavier jumps in front of Magneto and takes the bullet that was intended for him. And instead of Magneto dying, Xavier dies. Well, in a world where Xavier does not create the X-Men, what happens? And that is how the Age of Apocalypse universe was created. Like I said, they canceled every X-Book. Uncanny X-Men, Adjectiveless X-Men, X-Force, X-Factor, Wolverine, Cable, Excalibur, and Generation X. They were all canceled and replaced for four months with new books. Astonishing X-Men, Amazing X-Men, Excalibur with a different spelling, Gambit in the Externals, Weapon X, X-Men, etc., Well, it was a major success. It was a huge event. It galvanized the X titles again, only four years after their last successful major relaunch and rebranding. Here we go four years later, boom, this new event. It gets people jazzed for the X-Men again. It really allows the new creative teams that have been on these books working for a a little while, you know, a year or two here and there, to really showcase their ability to work together, to create a narrative, to create a world, and that they deserve to be able to play with the X-Men. It was a much-loved series. It was a fantastic crossover. And in 2005, on its 10-year anniversary, it had a sequel series of, of a sort. It was a six-issue miniseries called X-Men Age of Apocalypse, And it took place a year after the death of Apocalypse. The Age of Apocalypse came to an end when Magneto was able to kill Apocalypse. And all these other plans kind of all came to fruition at once. And they were able to use Bishop to, you know, relaunch the regular Marvel Universe, at least for the X-Men. So in 2005 series, it takes place a year after that. It's a year after Magneto has killed Apocalypse. And... Mankind is rebuilding with the help of Magneto and his X-Men. 
There are tensions high between mutants and humans. Most of the humans don't trust the mutants because of what Apocalypse and his goons did. And so Magneto and the X-Men start to hunt down all of these fugitive mutants, mutants who were loyal to Apocalypse, mutants who oppressed humans during the reign of Apocalypse. Magneto realizes that he needs the help of Weapon X. He needs the help of Logan. And so he dispatches a character out to find him and bring him back. And that is when we are introduced to the Age of Apocalypse version of X-23, also known as Kirika Yashida. So Kirika Yashida was created by a writer named Akira Yoshida, who we've learned recently was just a pen name for a current editor-in-chief, then just an editor named C.B. Sobolski. So there's a whole controversy there. Some people care, some people don't. I'm not going to uh, pass my judgment. I'll let you people make up your own minds. But needless to say, C.B. Sobolski was the writer of this six-issue miniseries, and we had art from Chris Bacalo, or Bacalo. It was published in 2005, and like I said, there is a character who is dispatched on behalf of Magneto and the X-Men to track down Weapon X and bring him into the fold. You see, Weapon X was a good guy, but he didn't always necessarily see eye-to-eye -eye with Magneto. And even during the Age of Apocalypse event, he wasn't part of the X-Men. He and Jean Grey were off doing their own thing together. And so after Apocalypse has been defeated and Jean Grey is seemingly dead, Logan leaves. He retires from superheroing. He retires from all of that life. He's no longer fighting. He moves to Canada, secludes himself at some cabin in northern Alberta, and is content to live there for the rest of his days. But this mystery character arrives and convinces him to come back and join the X-Men by offering him the chance at revenge. Revenge against all the mutants who worked for Apocalypse that were responsible for the death of Jean Grey. And that's enough to get Logan away from his hermit lifestyle. And this is after this character has revealed herself to him as X-23, Wolverine's daughter. Now, the character, her backstory, she was discovered in one of Sinister's abandoned labs in a sleeping tube kind of deal with the name X-23 on there. So... This was right about the time X-23 had made her debut in X-Men Evolution. This is about the time that she was making her debut in the Kyle and Yost written X-23 volumes 1 and 2. And so naturally they said, well, hey, you know, we'll do the, the Age of Apocalypse version of X-23, only it's not a clone of Wolverine, it's just the daughter of Wolverine and Mariko Yashida. So it's a good series. If you liked Age of Apocalypse and you wanted to revisit that, uh, de I definitely recommend that you do that. Uh, this particular story establishes a lot of the canon that is used in Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Men run, which I also have discussed on this podcast in the past. I forget what month it was. Maybe it was Alternate Logans. It was something, and we discussed that particular uh storyline where Wolverine and the Uncanny X-Force kind of get sucked into the Age of Apocalypse and they find out, oh, it was, you know, it was the Death Seed because they had to get a Death Seed from the Age of Apocalypse 
Now they had to get a life seed from the Age of Apocalypse in order to counteract the death seed that had taken over Archangel and turned Archangel into the new Apocalypse. That's right. So a lot of the established Age of Apocalypse canon that is used in Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Men run at that time uh, was established in this little miniseries. So Kirika Yashida, she has bone claws. She has heightened senses, heightened healing, and she has claws. And knowing that she is the daughter of Wolverine, but bummed out that she only has bone claws, she actually has Magneto bond adamantium to her claws. So kind of like a reverse Fatal Attractions. So Fatal Attractions was a storyline back in the 90s where the X-Men and the Acolytes pretty much fell into all-out war, you know, Xavier's faction versus Magneto's faction. And at one point, Magneto rips out all the adamantium from Wolverine's skeleton. So in the Age of Apocalypse, it's actually the opposite, where Magneto uses his magnetic powers to bond adamantium to the bones, if not the claws, of Kirika Yoshida, aka X-23. It's only at the end of that series that we find out her mother's name and who she is. Although by this point, Kirika Yashida, we can kind of guess who her mother was. There was also a moment in the Weapon X miniseries, or at least the Weapon X Age of Apocalypse series, where uh, Mariko tries to pull Logan aside and have a discussion with him. But, you know, that chapter of his life was over and he wasn't interested in discussing anything with her as he had a mission that he had to carry out with Jean. So, Kind of a loose plot thread. Eventually we find out that uh, Kirikia is Mariko and Wolverine's daughter. So again, she is from X-Men Age of Apocalypse from 2005, 1 through 6. She's a hero. She's from the Age of Apocalypse alternate universe, which is Earth 295. Father Logan, Mother Mariko, and of course similar powers to Wolverine. So those are Wolverine's daughters who are not Laura. We have Rena Logan and Kirika Yashida. Next up, one of Wolverine's sons. When we were discussing the MC2 universe and how it was this universe that tried to capture, you know, children, teenagers in the late 90s, 1999-ish, you know, 98 through 2000, give or take, and it didn't work. It didn't catch the interest of the young readers and it wasn't good enough you know these weren't dark enough or mature enough stories to really bring in the adult readers that were reading the x-men and the spider-man stories that were coming out so in 2000 marvel tried again and they launched a brand new universe again with ultimate spider-man number one and ultimate team up and then eventually that moved in the following year to ultimate x-men and then I believe the year after that to Ultimates number one. So Marvel decided, you know what? We didn't get the young readership with MC2. So let's try something else. Instead of going kind of cheesy and cartoony and making all these new teenage characters who are the children of grown-up heroes, it works for DC. I don't know why it didn't work for us. Let's try something new. Let's just make a brand new universe where we update the canon of all of our major heroes as if they were getting their powers in this day and age. And you know what? It worked. Ultimate Spider-Man by Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Bagley was a big success, and that led to the launch of Ultimate X-Men from Mark Miller and I want to say Andy Kubert. Could be Adam, but I'm pretty sure it's Andy. 
I'm, I might be wrong. It's one of the Kuberts. And so they launched Ultimate X-Men. And for the first 35 issues, Mark Miller was the writer. It was fantastic. Uh, after he left, we had Brian Michael Bendis for a little while. And surprisingly, it wasn't bad. And then we had a couple of like top name writers come on and tackle the book. And yet the stories they turned out really weren't all that good. Uh, Brian K. Vaughn had a short stint. Warren Ellis had a short stint on Ultimate X-Men, as did uh, Robert Kirkman. I mean, there were some pretty big names from the early 2000s to jump on and write stories that I lost interest in. So the universe launched in like 2000, 2001. It is Earth 1610. That's It's a little handle there as an alternate universe. And I read it for maybe five years. I read it through almost to like issue 75. I think the last story arc I read of Ultimate X-Men was the Banshee story arc that was like the ultimate version of Kick from the Morrison run of uh, New X-Men. I think the last story, like the last issues I'd read of Spider-Man also was about 75. And then eventually I went back and I read the Clone Saga, which was Ultimate Clone Saga was actually not bad again. Back in those early 2000s, man, Brian Michael Bendis really surprised people with really good storylines. And I think the last Ultimate storyline I read was Ultimates 3 with uh, Jeff Loeb and Joe Mad when they came on and did their little short, like, five or six issue arc where it was kind of like the ultimate version of, like, Ultimate Disassembled and everything. Uh, so I lost interest in the Ultimate Universe fairly quickly. Uh, after only a few years. But just because I lost interest in it doesn't mean that it didn't go away. It kept going. It kept plugging away, kept chugging along, spitting out Ultimates and eventually Ultimate Avengers, a new Ultimate X-Men series, some more Ultimate Spider-Man. Eventually we have the creation of Miles Morales, which was actually really good. Uh, a buddy of mine is a big Miles fan, and when those were first coming out, he had let me borrow the first couple of trades uh, that featured, like, uh, the first few appearances of my uh, Miles and everything, and that was good stuff. I really liked that, but it wasn't enough to really get me interested in the Ultimate Universe again. And eventually, by 2009, we had this huge universe-wide crossover called Ultimatum, and it was like the ultimate war between Magneto and his mutant terrorists and like the rest of the heroes of the Ultimate Marvel Universe. Most of them died, and... From what I gather, it was not a very good storyline. People hated it. Uh, it's not considered good by critics either. And it led to a relaunch, in a sense, of all the Ultimate titles. After that, like Ultimates and Ultimate Avengers kind of all started brand new, as well as a five-issue or six-issue miniseries called Ultimate X that led into a whole new thing. And it was in the pages of Ultimate X that we meet one of Wolverine's sons from an alternate universe, Jimmy Hudson. Now, Jimmy Hudson might ring a bell to those of you who read the recent X-Men Blue series from Colin Bunn, as Jimmy Hudson randomly appeared, and we had some fallout with the time-displaced O5 teaming up with Jimmy to fight like this new brotherhood from his timeline. So Jimmy Hudson is the son of ultimate wolverine his mother is unknown the character itself was created by writer jeff loeb and artist arthur adams also known as art adams he first appeared in ultimate x number one 
which came out in 2010. Now, Jimmy Hudson is a character who I didn't particularly care for when he first appeared in Blue, but I and I only vaguely had any kind of recollection of who he was. And so when I learned who he was, that he was from Ultimate X, I was like, oh, well, you know, I'll go back and I'll, I'll read that storyline to see what it was all about. And it didn't really feature too much of Jimmy Hudson. The whole first issue was really about him. And then the rest of it was about this new team of mutants that were being put together by Gene and this mysterious benefactor. So like I said, the first issue, it's Jimmy Hudson. He's this teenage kid. And he's a bit of a troublemaker. He's a bit of an outlaw. You know, here he is. He's doing these illegal street racing and all that. And he's in the middle of a race. And one of his tires pops. And he rolls his car down this hill. The car explodes, catches flames. He's engulfed in flames. And he crawls out of the car. And his distraught girlfriend runs down the hill screaming, you know, Jimmy. And he's crawling out of this wreckage. And right before her very eyes, he starts to heal. And as he's healing, the sheriff arrives. And Jimmy's screaming, you know, I'm not a mutant. I'm not a mutant. And we find out that Jimmy Hudson's dad, Jimmy Hudson Sr., is the sheriff of, I think they live in Port St. Lucie, Florida. So he's the sheriff. He takes Jimmy home to the trailer. And we're actually, throughout this issue, we're getting narration from Jimmy Hudson Sr. And we learn that Jimmy Hudson served with James Howlett in the first Gulf War. And Logan had saved his life on many occasions. Logan had actually introduced Jimmy Hudson to um, Jimmy Hudson's future wife, Heather McDonald. Eventually, Jimmy Hudson and Heather McDonald get married. So they're the ultimate versions of, you know, Guardian and Vindicator from Alpha Flight, although they live in Florida and they're not part of Alpha Flight at all. Um, Needless to say, Jim Hudson, Jimmy Hudson, feels that he owes Logan big time. And one day, Logan arrives with a baby in his arms and says, this is my son. I cannot raise him. Please do it. And Jimmy and Heather are ecstatic because they had been trying to have a baby and they couldn't. So now here's Logan giving them this baby. And they never tell Jimmy that he was given to them by, you know, Wolverine, this supposed hero of the ultimate universe. So he crashes his car, his powers manifest, or at least his healing. And the very next day, who should arrive at his house but Kitty Pride, one of the few survivors of the ultimatum event. And she gives him like a little locket, kind of not a locket, but like a little box that's about the size of a safe deposit box, a little wooden box. And she says, in this box is the truth about your life. He opens it and he learns that he is the son of Wolverine. Kitty encourages him to see if he can pop his claws. He pops them out, they're bone. And as he's kind of wondering why he's got these bone claws this metallic fluid starts seeping out of his hands and actually engulfs the claws. Now he's got metal claws. So he has this weird kind of power where he can make his claws metal or bone, but they don't really ever explain it, at least not to my knowledge. Now the rest of the series deals with Jimmy teaming up with this mutant who's on the run named Karen Grant, who we actually learn is Jean Grey in disguise. And the two of them team up in the next issue and recruit another mutant and then another and then another. And eventually we learn that they are like on opposing sides to Pietro's 
new brotherhood that he's been rebuilding in his father's image and it's this whole big thing and I didn't really continue on after that but I do remember at the very least check out Ultimate X number one which is the first appearance of Jimmy Hudson you actually kind of feel for the kid you know he's this kid who never really fit in and eventually he learns why and he's got these cool powers and he looks just like Wolverine but with blonde hair instead of black hair Uh, he's a little bit taller so and I like the idea that, you know, James Hudson and Heather McDonald are in there and they're tied to Ultimate Wolverine in a way as well. So it had a lot of fun stuff. It was actually written pretty well. I've always liked Jeff Loeb as a writer. I mean, he's had some ups and downs, but I've always liked him. And this series, at least this issue in particular, was pretty good. Art Adams always on fire. He's got a very distinctive style and it worked well for this series. So Jimmy Hudson, the son of Wolverine and an unnamed Ultimate Universe woman, Jimmy is a hero. He fights with the, not necessarily the X-Men, but Jean Grey's team of mutants from the Ultimate Universe 1610 with powers of heightened senses, healing factor, and claws. Eventually, he comes into the main 616 and teams up with the time-displaced X-Men in the uh, X-Men Blue series, and at one point, There's a crossover because the writer was also writing a Venom series, and so the two of those crossed over, and I believe Jimmy bonded with one of the symbiotes, and so he's now called Poison. So one of Wolverine's sons is still floating around out there in the universe as it is. So that takes us to our final child of logan now this isn't the last child of logan that is running around out there or at least has appeared but it's really the last one i'm covering and this one is called ray's dark home now ray's dark home first appeared in x-men battle of the atom number one it was a 2013 event that crossed over with brian michael bendis's uh, uncanny x-men all new x-men jason aaron's wolverine and the x-men and of course it had like a its own single issues, you know, X-Men Battle of the Atom number one, and then uh, I believe the 12th issue of the 12-part crossover was also it was like X Battle of the Atom finale or Omega or whatever it happens to be. But the character of Ray's Darkhome was created by Brian Michael Bendis and Stuart Eminen. Now, Stuart Eminen, in my humble opinion, is one of the most underrated pencilers in comics, especially at around this time. He was in a lot of, he was doing a lot of stuff. And I feel like it was being overlooked because there were so many big names on the X-Books at the time. You know, you had Bagley doing art for a little while with uh, Brian Bendis on All New, plus also Stuart Eminen. But then you also had Jason Aaron writing on Wolverine and the X-Men. You had Chris Bocciolo doing artwork with Brian Bendis on Uncanny, did some on Wolverine and the X-Men. So, I mean, there were all kinds of names coming in and out of the X-Books at that time, and I feel like Stuart Eminen never gets his due. Fantastic stuff, Uh, and his Battle of the Atom work is really good. So Battle of the Atom was a crossover event that took place in, you know, 2013 with all of those X-Books, and it mostly dealt with this team of X-Men, supposedly, from the future, return to the present to try to fix time. You know, they are blaming the fact that the original five are here in this timeline 
for messing the timeline up and giving birth to their hellish future that they are from. Now, eventually we learn that they are not, in fact, the X-Men of their timeline, but they are, in fact, the new brotherhood of their timeline. And though their motives at first seem to be somewhat altruistic, it turns out that they are very much not and are rather sinister. So the Brotherhood is led by the son of Mystique and Charles Xavier. It is Charles Xavier II. He goes by X. And his second in command is Ray's Darkholm, Xavier's half-brother, the son of Wolverine and Mystique. Now, Ray's has all the powers of Wolverine, senses, healing, claws, but he also has all the powers of Mystique, shape-shifting. And apparently he's an even better shapeshifter. His mutant power for shapeshifting is even stronger than Mystique's. So the two of them team up as villains and they use Xavier's power to brainwash a bunch of other mutant characters, uh, Jean Grey, Beast, Iceman to a degree, and Molly Hayes, who is a member of the Runaways, but she's a mutant. Anyway, they form, oh, and Deadpool. So they form that timeline's brotherhood and Ray's has a similar attitude towards Wolverine that uh, Dakin has which is I don't like you I just want to see you suffer because you're a piece of crap and I'm a piece of crap and why should we grow and heal and all that when we could just you know mess each other's lives up so the battle of the atom fantastic crossover series it was one of the better ones that we've had in the last couple of years uh surprisingly I I liked Bendis early on. I stopped liking him like in the mid 2000s and I wasn't really all that hyped to hear that he was at the helm of two X books, especially one that sounded conceptually dull. The original five X-Men taken from the past to the present doesn't sound all that great, but his two books were fantastic. I know everyone rants and raves about his all new, but his uncanny, I just, I loved the Bendis uncanny run. I don't know why I just, I really liked it. Like that was X-Men. That was the X-Men that I wanted to see in that era of X-Men. And so I was happy that we got it. And I feel like Bendis actually did a lot of really great character work for Cyclops that is just, all of it's just overlooked. And I don't know why. It was like, they just, he wrote it all. And then editing came down and was like, yeah, we don't like any of this. We shouldn't have even let you write it, but we did. So we're just going to ignore everything that happened. And we're just going to keep pushing our Cyclops as a, as a whack job narrative. Oh, well, it's, I climbed down off my soapbox. This is a Wolverine podcast, not a Cyclops podcast. Although hashtag Cyclops was right. So Rays of the four that we talked about is the only villain. Again, he's from the Battle of the Atom future, and it does have an alternate future number, and that is uh, Universe 13729. So again, his powers are senses, healing, claws, and shape-shifting. He's a cool character. Like he's He looks just like Wolverine, but he's got blue skin and red hair like Mystique, uh, but otherwise he looks just like Wolverine. You know, he's got that sa- the same hairstyle, the same like chops, same, you know, he's got the claws and all that. So I like it. You know, uh, Kirika has Mariko's hair. I forgot to mention that Rena has hair. That's like a ponytail in the back, like a ninja, but it's like wild up front kind of goes to off to either side, like Wolverine's hair. I don't know why I'm bringing that up, but so those are four of Wolverine's often overlooked yet pseudo canonical children. 
Um, I was hoping to have time. I don't really have time to cover them, but I'll at least give a shout out to the mongrels. Now, on the last episode, during the Amico episode, we covered parts of volume four of Wolverine when it was renumbered to number 300. And that came right after issue 20. But issue one started a brand new story arc by Jason Aaron. That was the one where Wolverine goes to hell. But in that story arc, that very first issue of Wolverine Volume 4, also came out in 2010, uh, was the Mongrels. Now, the Mongrels was a team of five characters named, and these names are dumb, but it is what it is, Gunhawk, Shadowstalker, Fire Knives, Sophist, and Cannonfoot. And most of their powers are just as dumb as their names, but they all look pretty cool, at least. Uh, Gunhawk, especially, I thought looked pretty neat. But it turns out... They were this squad called the Mongrels, and it was their goal in life to make Wolverine suffer. They were part of an organization called the Red Right Hand, and eventually, spoiler alert, Wolverine fights them and kills them all one by one, and then it's only after he kills all five of them that he learns that all five of them were in fact his children as well, from, you know, nameless mothers, probably workers from the streets of Madripoor, I don't know, who knows. But they were also canonically Wolverine's children, although they were introduced and then killed off, like, I think issue 13 of volume 2. So, I mean, they were introduced, they had their story arc, and then they were killed off. But it's worth mentioning that they were also children of Logan. So I hope you liked the episode. I know we didn't really cover any particular comic, at least story-wise, but we did brush upon all these first appearances and backgrounds of Wolverine's children. Personally, my favorite was Kirika Yashida from Age of Apocalypse, although uh, Jimmy's growing on me. I actually went back before this episode and reread Ultimate X, and I kind of think I'm going to go back through and read a little bit more of the stuff that features Jimmy, because uh, he's actually growing on me as a character. So uh, go back and check it all out if you can. Like All of this stuff is on Marvel Unlimited. Most of it has been collected in trades as well, so look for it if you want. It's definitely, some of it at least, is uh, definitely worth checking out. Tune in next week as we cover, I'm not going to tell you what quite yet, but one of the earliest, if not the earliest, appearance of Wolverine's son, Dakin, or Dakin. Bubs, if you like the show and want to see it continue to grow, there are a couple of things you can do. First off, tell a friend. If you listen to the show, it's probably because you're a Wolverine fan, if not an X-Men fan. And if you are, chances are you know someone else who is too. If that person isn't listening to the show, recommend it to them. They can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts, with I think the exception of SoundCloud. Uh, so definitely recommend they check out the show and join the Talkin' Snicked community. Now, Bubs, if you want to go above and beyond... Rate and review the show on whatever app you use to listen. Uh, I know I'm rated on iTunes. I have no idea if I'm rated on Google Play because I don't have a Google device, so I can't actually check those numbers. Uh, but any kind of rating, any kind of review, I should get notification of. And it really goes a long way to help the visibility of the show. If people jump into any of these apps and do a search for certain keywords, then my show will pop up. The higher rated it is, the higher it'll pop up in those search results. And hopefully more people 
will find it. And I like to get reviews, good or bad. I just like to know that people care enough to leave one. So if you have the time, please do so. Lastly, if you want to go even further above and beyond, check out my Patreon. It is patreon.com slash talkinsnicked, T-A-L-K-I-N-S-N-I-K-T. Join the community on there. As I said numerous times, I'm working on ways to grow my presence on Patreon, and not just for patrons, but just for anyone. Anyone who wants to join the Talk Instinct community can go down there. They can comment on posts and stuff, and I'm working on a couple of posts right now. Hopefully by the end of this month, we'll have some stuff up there, and hopefully we can get some discussions going up on those boards. So go over to patreon.com slash Check it out. If you're interested in contributing, you can contribute at various tier levels, $1, $2, $5, and $10 levels, and each of those levels do come with some rewards. So check it out. Otherwise, you can always just reach out to me on social media. I'm on Twitter, at TalkinSnicked, or you can send me an email, TalkSnicked at gmail.com. That's T-A-L-K-S-N-I-K-T at gmail.com. And just anything. Ask me questions. Tell me what you think of the show, what you like, what you don't like. Talk to me about Wolverine. I'm always here to talk about everyone's favorite Claude Knucklehead. Bubs, make sure you stay tuned to the end of the show and check out the track Back from the Dead by the very talented musician Retcon X. It is a Talkin' Snicked exclusive song. You can only hear it here. And it was inspired by Wolverine. Now, Retcon X is a musician who creates original music inspired by the X-Men. He has three full-length albums that you can find on his Spotify playlist, which I have linked in the show notes, or jump over to his website where you can sample his tracks. Like I said, he's got three full albums and a couple of singles that are all inspired by the X-Men, and they are all pretty darn good. So do yourself a favor, check out Back from the Dead, and then go check out his other stuff. Until next time, bubs. <laughs>